0: Hi, I'm Paul J. Welcome to theanalysis.news. We'll be back in just a few seconds with retired former New York Times correspondent Bob Smith, who's going to talk about his new book, Suppressed. And please don't forget the donate button and the share button and the subscribe button and all the buttons. Bob Smith has written a book titled Suppressed, Confessions of a Former New York Times Washington Correspondent. Smith writes, this is a story of when innocence meets reality and when bias makes its way into the most respective of journalistic temples. Smith says that bias continues today. He writes that the Times lost its impartiality when confronted with the challenges to objective journalism presented by Donald Trump. He also says the Times failed to report on Watergate and refused to cover the My Lai Massacre in Vietnam. Of course, I'd add Judith Miller's so-called reporting that helped the Bush government with their fraudulent claims about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and there's, there's a bunch of other examples. Now joining us is Bob Smith. He's a retired journalist. He became a leading lawyer in the U.S. and Europe and held a senior position in Jimmy Carter's Justice Department. Thanks very much for joining us, Bob.
1: Thanks, Paul. Glad to be here.
0: So start off by telling us, uh, you know, what were the years you were uh, working in Washington for The Times? And then how, do you, how did you balance serious investigative journalism with what I, I, I call the tyranny of access? Because usually the more serious seriously you investigate, uh, the less your phone gets picked up by people. Often your job depends on talking to
1: Well, it's interesting. I've never heard anybody call it tyranny. That's uh, a good way of putting it, I suppose. Uh, By the way, you mentioned Judy Miller. I I don't personally know that uh, incident the rest of the incidents in my book. I do know firsthand because what's in the book are things I experienced and lived through firsthand. And and obviously that wasn't one of them. It depends on what your beat is, so to speak, uh, in Washington. If you are assigned to cover... Uh, financial regulation, or the Pentagon, or uh, even the State Department—a particular entity with a particular set of sources—then uh, you might be punished uh, in a way for uh, unearthing stories that the people at the Pentagon or the State Department don't like, and they may not cut off your access, but they may not—they may reduce it or choose to give their stories elsewhere. Um, But there's another side to that, and that is there's an entire cadre or world of sources in those institutions. And they are waiting, in my experience, to talk to somebody like you, um, who is not so tied to uh, sometimes their bosses, but in any event, the the people uh, you might otherwise see as the senior sources there. Um, and uh, they are encouraged rather than offended by uh, what you're calling the, uh, the the tyranny of access. That is to say, they'll feed you the stuff that uh, their bosses uh, or others in uh, the department or wherever it is don't want to give you. So there's a countervailing balance. If you have to every day uh, cover uh, the Pentagon. Uh, then you might have some difficulties in, in perhaps in doing a sharp investigative recording there. But, you know, when I covered the Justice Department uh, at one point. What years were you uh, a correspondent in Washington? Oh, sorry. Yes. Uh, so roughly 1967 or eight until 1972 or three. And then I came back in 75 or six um, for another couple of years. So those, those that's the time frame, more or less. I interrupted for three years at, at uh, Yale Law School and went back to the paper. Uh, anyway, um, so uh, you there is a countervailing and much more important uh, cadre of folks uh, who uh, would be willing to talk to you, especially if you'd sell, shown some um, initiative and steel or whatever one calls it. Um, and reported on the things that the uh, department or entity didn't want you to. So it cuts both ways. Uh, I'll tell you, for example, in the book, I talk about the fact that I I covered the Millai Massacre. I broke it at the same time as Cy Hirsch. Um, His story first appeared in in London uh, the same, the next day uh, might appear in the New York Times. And um, I say with regret because uh, I, I liked the reporter and he was uh, a really nice man. Uh, you know, the Pentagon reporter for the Times who sat next to me, uh, uh, you know, uh, what four feet away or something, um, uh, would not write or did not write about the Milly massacre all the way through when I was covering it. He covered only, the first thing he covered, was a news conference by the Pentagon uh, when it was releasing its own internal investigation of the massacre, the so-called peers report. Um, And and I don't misunderstand. I'm not blaming him individually or personally, but that's what's happened when your job is to find out what's going on in the institution. Uh, As you point out, there's some risk in offending the institution. I got uh, Paul, one really good break. I didn't realize when I got it, I was asked to come down to Washington to interview with the bureau chief and the uh, news editor, the Washington Bureau of the Times. They took me to lunch at this uh, place next door to the, paper, uh, to the bureau. And um, when I was there, they said they were looking for somebody uh, who was not uh, tied to a particular, uh, in, who wouldn't be tied to a particular institution or beat. Uh, as everybody else was in the Bureau. And I had the feeling they were looking for a youngster who was fresh to it, and that was certainly me. And I was naive, because who would go into an interview with the Washington Bureau Chief of the Times and say somewhere along the, this pub meal, uh, you know, I'm not very interested in politics. I just sort of need to be upfront about that. I mean, what worse thing could you say? But it was honest, and they hired me, and uh, moved me down from New York. Um, And so
0: I had the advantage of not being tied to a particular institution. And just to explain to people, tied to a particular institution meant justice or Pentagon or White House. So you could write about whatever you wanted to.
1: Well, uh, or where the action was, so to speak, not exactly what I, well, later on what I wanted to, but beginning, it was more, you know, what was happening here, there, or what reporter was on vacation from the State Department, that sort of thing. Yes, that's right. But I did not have to carry favor with the people uh, who were handing out the news in the State Department.
0: So, did you ever ask this guy why he wasn't covering uh, Mila?
1: No, I thought I knew why. I was covering it and didn't, therefore, matter to the readers, which is the whole point.
0: But in theory, such an important story, you're covering the Pentagon, you should be doing it. So, he's not doing it because he doesn't want to piss off the Pentagon
1: can't read his mind, but he didn't do it for months. Uh,
0: and that's the time of the Vietnam War where I don't know if there's ever been more lying than during the Vietnam War coming out of the Pentagon.
1: Right. Uh, yes. Uh, that's true. Uh, but, I, you know, when I was finally, well, at one point I was assigned to cover the Justice Department, and I regarded it as covering justice. My concept of the beat Uh, was that I was covering justice in the United States, not a building, not a cadre of people in this building uh, in Washington. Uh, First off, because uh, I didn't think uh, I would get much news that way by sitting around a newsroom in this building. Uh, And secondly, because it's too narrow a definition of what you're doing. And thirdly, it makes you focus on uh the wrong folks in a way, if you're focusing on just the people sitting in that building. And fourthly, it leaves out the what, what J Het Goover of all people called uh SOG, that is the seat of government, the contrast between the seat of government and what was happening actually in the field. So I was free. If they were saying something about justice at justice or at the White House or wherever, I could take what they were saying, and then go out to Kansas City and see if it had any relationship to reality. So again, I, I say your view is correct, and it's dangerous. Um, I, it's the way it is.
0: Now, this is what I've always thought is interesting about the New York Times, is they'll have someone like you who will do investigative work. They'll publish it, even though if it goes against the grain of what official Washington wants. On the other hand, they will let this guy at the Pentagon act like a stenographer for the Pentagon. And with the way Judith Miller was, I keep bringing it up because it's, it's a more recent example and it helped lead to the Iraq War. But it's not just the Judith Millers of this world. It's, it's almost the majority of the press corps that is institutionally bound, and is so concerned about access that they do wind up becoming stenographers for the official line on stuff. You know, until you get some like you know, Snowden breaks you know these videos of what went on in Iraq. It's not like like the you're a guy who's covering the Pentagon and won't cover the Myli, uh massacre. It's not like your editors didn't know he wasn't doing it.
1: But they had me doing
0: it. And yeah, but I'm I'm using that as an example. There was a whole whack of other stuff that I, the, I completely uh, understand. Well I, that, just, the reader still got the story. Yeah. I got it. Uh, so this brings me. Let's let's kind of. Well, 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 well Why we're back in the, those years? Let's let's pursue this. Uh, May I say one thing before next yeah. question. You mentioned Judy Miller. I I mean
1: I I knew I met uh, Miller uh, a very long time ago. Um, with regard to uh, the story you're talking, the wrong story uh, you're talking about, the story that's wrong, um, you know, I don't know if that was born of an attachment to certain sources or misplaced trust coupled with a desire to get this enormous story out there. So there are competing things going on at the same time. I have no idea what activated her, but it was a terrific story, if true. Right, and she placed trust where
0: she obviously shouldn't have. In my mind, okay. Let me just for yes, some of the younger viewers and uh, who don't know what we're talking about when we mean Judith Miller. Uh, so, Judith Miller was a you know an important journalist for New York Times, and started reporting quote unquote uh, on weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and essentially repeating what she was being told by Dick Cheney and. Rumsfeld and the Bush administration, which was all a bunch of BS, and uh, and frankly, I mean, I, I I was running a debate show on Canadian television at the time, and we had guest after guest on the debate show saying this is all BS. Hans Blix, the UN uh, inspector, was saying it's BS. He kept saying over and over again, "If you know where the weapons are, tell me. I'll go look." So it's not like Miller. Couldn't have known there was at the very least a contrary view that was credible, yet she keeps repeating this, this shit. Uh, but I don't want to just make a point of her. Uh, it's, it's, you know, the editors of The New York Times keep publishing her when an editor's job is to say to Miller, well, hold on here. How do you report this stuff? when Blix and others are saying such and such? The answer to that, I
1: mean, in, in, if you're in at, in the times, in the moment with the editors, they they might, it depends on their confidence in the correspondent and the trust based on experience and, and so on. So they might say to Miller, uh, well, listen, there's a lot of uh, disagreement on this point. How certain are you of your correctness? How sure are you, you of your sources? How many sources do you have? What level are they at? And this dialogue would t- take place. And, and obviously she had misplaced uh, the great uh, uh, confidence in in her sources. But I just didn't want to let the point go without saying there there is a sort of internal testing. But it relies at the end of the day on
0: your confidence in the correspondent who's covering that stuff. Okay, you're very generous. Uh, I go the other way. I think I look at the New York Times editorial policy like a hedge fund. They'll they'll have certain reporting that will say this, but they'll hedge their bets and make sure the officialdom line also gets reported. And this is what's interesting. I think what happened with Trump, and you make this point. But uh, well, actually, let me read a, a piece from how you close your book here. Uh, let me get this in front of me. Uh, You close the book. uh, You write this. I'll let The New York Times have the last word. This is uh, Bob Smith writing. This is what Peter Baker wrote in July 2019 an article on page one labeled News Analysis, Washington. President Trump woke up on Sunday morning, gazed out at the nation he leads, saw the dry kindling of race relations, and decided to throw a match on it. It was not the first time, nor is it likely to be the last. He has a pretty large carton of matches and a ready supply of kerosene. And then that's the end of your quote. And then you write, this was not an editorial, it was an article. Who is Baker? He's not a member of the paper's editorial board, the part of the paper that is permitted and paid to voice opinions. No, he's the Times chief White House reporter. And that ends what you were writing. But I'd argue most of mainstream journalism's objectivity was a pretense long before Trump. That with Trump, the need to compete with the Fox business model, they dropped even the pretense. Was there ever at times a time where the New York Times was without such bias? And this speaks to what we're talking about: that that even if they allowed people like you to report on the Mila uh, massacre, the overall editorial uh, direction, guidance, decision making had a whole lot of built-in agenda and bias. Well, uh, less than now. Uh,
1: you know, this is an age when, when, where I don't live uh, in the media world. I, I went on to be uh, many, or I had different careers after journalism and then the most recent for decades here and in Europe was as a mediator, commercial mediator. But, uh, you know, clickbait. bait, the digital era, the fight for every single click, this sort of stuff. Uh, and it's very interesting because my, I mean, you're the, you, you, you mentioned that the tie was nice. I, I assure you the New York Times now does not find me nice. They are not uh, saying this is an important book, read it sort of thing because it's critical of the paper. Um, who's, by the way, the readership of the New York Times, if you look at the statistics, is 92% democratic. Their, their base, their readership base is 92% democratic. Um, so has it always been thus? Uh, I don't know, but there are degrees here. Are, are, do reporters have their own values? You bet. Uh, where should they stay? Not in their stories, wherever else they are. And there are, there's a range. You know, when I was in law school, they taught us that, uh, this professor taught me that evidence comes in different kinds. There's the solidity of the desk uh, next to me here. There's a desk. It's hard. Uh, there's the, I don't know, a rainbow out there. Some people may see it and some nod with different degrees of clarity. There's a whole range. And the same thing is true in my mind. Uh, about what uh reporters uh, what how much reporters values intrude in the story but we're in a completely different era Paul and that's the problem from my point of view that's the problem we're in the advocacy era we're in an area era where uh, reporters of uh, uh, you know roughly 20 to 35 or something or other believe and we're taught many of them in journalism school that um, this is Journalism is about advocacy. You know, after what uh, Woodward and Bernstein did so superbly in, in Watergate, that was not advocacy. That was investigative reporting. And there's one hell of a difference between the two. In investigative reporting, you start out and you're going to find out what happened and you have no idea where it ends up. In advocacy journalism, you start out and you go after it, but you know exactly where you're going to end up. And we're now in a modality where the second the advocacy journalism mode uh, seems to be kind of running the show. And that's exceptionally unfortunate. It has led, and this please is a central point I'd like to make. Heck, I'm a mediator, right? And I, I've done it in different cultures. We're in a divided country, 50-50 or whatever it is. The media are completely divided all over the place, right? And The United States is dead last in trust of the media. There was just two weeks ago, I think it was, an Oxford Reuters Institute of Journalism study um, uh, about this, and the United States was 41st, 41st in trust of readers or citizens in the media. This means that uh, the press, which could help uh the country see itself see the right, see the left and vice versa show us what we have in common can't do it people don't trust the media and if they watch read or listen to the media if they're conservative they go to fox and and so on and so on so this advocacy journalism has brought rewards to uh advocacy journalists uh but it is at the expense of all the rest of us
0: yeah, I think I think part of what's happened is Fox was so successful in the business model of not first of all of course not caring at all about journalism or facts but just throwing red meat to a base that you that in this new internet media broadcast world you need to create a segment that you can own and forget about everybody else. And you do that by throwing you know, political red meat to them. So CNN has become that. MSNBC became that. Trump became the the way for those guys to transform into Fox models, you know, just anti-Trump models. And the New York Times has more or less followed suit. I, I don't think as bad as CNN and MSNBC, but certainly to a large extent. And and I, I think a lot also has to do how the ownership has changed. I was seeing the other day that I was Looking at BlackRock, the big asset management company, and Vanguard and State Street, these big three and other financial institutions—if I'm—if I'm getting it correctly from the stats I'm seeing—they own 93% of the New York Times. Financial institutions, so it's—and it's not that they dictate the politics of the New York Times; they dictate the profit making in the most aggressive sense has to be the agenda of the New York Times and the way you make money during the Trump era is throw red meat to the anti-trump people the same way Fox does from the other side.
1: Well except I, and I don't know the answer these days. Uh, I haven't looked for a while you have to look at this uh, which stock shares actually have control. It may be that uh, the folks you're talking about, have a lot of shares,
0: but what shares and what control, if any? Oh no, no, they they actually get to vote those shares, those asset management companies, and it's not a different class or something. No, no, they, it's it's they they have the the financial institutions have controlling interest at 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 general meetings. They get to decide who the management's going to be. That's my understanding of it, anyway. And and not just the New York Times. These same financial institutions have the same power with almost every media company and every other company. The only companies they don't have the same kind of interest in is uh, uh, The Washington Post because Bezos owns it and Bloomberg because they have private ownership. But practically every other media company is controlled by the same financial institutions, not controlled that the day-to-day operations are dictated in any way. And the interesting thing,
1: you, you mentioned the Post, uh, I, I don't know a lot about the Post, uh, except that their new uh, e- executive editor, a person who runs the joint editorial, right, uh, was uh, It just came from the Associated Press. And in my book, in an effort to provide evidence, I and mean, since I am a lawyer, I, as to what I'm saying, is this persistent bias in the times, if it wasn't clear on its face, everybody, I take coverage by the Times, stories that the Times ran about Trump and so on, and compare it with the Associated Press stories of exactly the same event. And really, sometimes you wouldn't know it's the same event. The reason I do that is the Associated Press has hundreds, I don't know, thousands, I suppose, of um, uh, clients uh, who buy the news, which buy the news from it, and those clients are across the spectrum, from right to left. They're international. They're all over the place. So if the AP wants to retain those clients, it can't offend
0: uh, the ones on the right or the ones on the left. It has to put down the middle. That's very interesting because I go to AP first when I want to look at a news story. My first thing is my AP app. For for exactly, I hadn't understood the reasons why AP was better, but I knew they were better. Right,
1: and there are other publications that are less that are. Less uh, an admixture of news and opinion. You know, my first job out of journalism school was uh, they they recruited me uh, as a correspondent for Time magazine in that day. Um, And I I could stand it for only a year and then I I left. But uh, I left because of this undifferentiated uh, mixture, admixture of news and opinion, you know? And now, uh, hey, it's everywhere.
0: Thanks very much for joining me, Bob. And please join me for part two with Bob Smith as we continue our discussion about his book, Suppressed Confessions of a Former New York Times Washington Correspondent. Please don't forget the donate button, subscribe and share and all the buttons. We can't do this without your support.